Welcome to the Monash University Perioperative Medicine podcast series. My name is Jamie Smart, and today I'm once again joined by Kerry McLaughlin. Kerry is a consultant anaesthetist at the Alfred Hospital and at Caulfield Hospitals, and is one of our pain specialists. Welcome again, Kerry. Hello, Jamie. Thanks for inviting me. Kerry, the last time we met, we talked about the so-called opioid epidemic and the ways in which perioperative clinicians can avoid becoming part of the problem. I want to return to the topic of opioids in today's podcast because the um, slow-release opioids continue to get bad press. Last year, the College of Anaesthetists released a position statement on slow-release opioids in which they stated that slow-release opioids are not recommended for use in management of patients with acute pain, essentially because of the risk of respiratory depression and serious adverse events. And in a recent series in The Lancet, Paul Miles and others highlighted that chronic post-surgical pain occurs in approximately 10% of patients. It typically begins as acute post-operative pain that is difficult to control and that opioid-induced hyperalgesia probably plays a significant role. Despite this, it appears that many of us are still prescribing slow-release slow opioids post-operatively. Why do you think this is the case? Well, it, <laughs> good question. Um, I think the good thing about the college statement was that it did highlight this as a major problem amongst us as an anaesthetic community. We're the major prescribers of opioids at the time of surgery and I think the problem we have had which was highlighted really within the college statement was that it's not just the prescribing at the initial post-surgical point that is the problem but it's the prescribing at the point of discharge and thus the continued use of opioids in the community. I think we as anaesthetists when we prescribe them have a perception that these opioids will be weaned and cease during the normal perioperative course. Audits we've done locally really have shown that actually when we prescribe them, if we don't take control over that weaning and cessation period, it just doesn't happen. Well, that's true, because um, correct me if I'm wrong, but a recent audit, audit here in our major teaching hospital showed that a significant, a significant number of our patients, particularly the ERAS patients, mm. are returning home on slow-release opioids. So we, clearly we still have a problem. Oh, absolutely. Um, the ERAS protocol is something that we specifically chose because we have inherent within that um, a direction for our anaesthetist to prescribe a slow-release opioid as management of post-operative pain. The intention of that protocol was, though, that that slow-release opioid was only used for 36, 72 hours post-operatively. And our audit showed that that population of opioid-naive patients, 80% of them are actually still going home with that opioid. And that's, I think, mirrored throughout the state when this occurs because... I certainly see these patients down in the chronic pain clinic who several years after their total hip or total knee replacement are still on these opioids without any weaning. What are the, some of the simple things you think we can do uh, or that we can incorporate into our perioperative practice to address this continued reliance on slow-release opioids? Well, I think the first thing, the first thing is that the college statement starters are all talking about this. So there's now an increased awareness that it is a problem and an increased awareness that our inherent practices have to be adjusted in a way that means that our intentions are conveyed to both the patient but also the treating team and then onwards to the GP and the community. So the, start, the discussion was the starting point. And in how, in, in, within all of this is expectations, expectation management, if you like. Um, 
one thing that was really interesting about the evidence-based periop medicine course in London last year was the concept of surgery school, where they're bringing patients in pre-surgery and actually talking to them about what pain they can expect, but also what functional restorative component we expect as well. We, you know, we want people to get out of bed the day after surgery. We want people to do deep breathing and coughing, and all of this is vital for DVT prevention and for pneumonia prevention, and just engaging patients in their own treatment and their own and highlighting what our expectations of pain management and what we would like to see them do is a key part of that process too if patients come in expecting no pain clearly they're going to be disappointed because everybody has pain after a surgical procedure to some degree we also know that trying to create a pain score of zero after surgery is not healthy either Patients, when they're surveyed, say the pain score of between three and four actually is relatively acceptable to them. So treating a pain score of three and four with opioids to try to make it zero or, or one actually is counterproductive because we're just exposing those patients to the side effects of opioids, which are in themselves quite distressing. I know several patients say they'd prefer nausea, so they prefer pain to having the nausea mm. that they get when they have the opioid that they're given for their pain relief postoperatively. So it starts even before the surgery begins in our you know, recognition of what the perioperative surgical factors are going to be that they may be causing increased pain, if we refer back to the Lancet paper, but also what our patients' expectations are of the surgery they're going to have. We then determine as anaesthetists what opioid we think is appropriate. And, you know, we've got to remember we are pretty well placed to determine what opioid is required. Well, that, you know, I think that's a good point. And you've, you've addressed the pre-op preparation and sort of the post-operative follow-up and care but you know we are well placed so mm. let's talk about some alternatives to some of the longer acting opioids that we use perhaps in that intraoperative period and going into the, the immediate post-operative period i'm thinking of two drugs in particular um buprenorphine and tapentadol mm. um, they seem to be getting increased in attention are these the drugs that the college refers to as safer opioids in their position statement es essentially yes that's right so the college um I think is, is what they're saying is that if we are going to use opioids for our post-operative pain, what they would like us to try to incorporate into that is the use of potentially safer opioids. And by safer opioids, what we're specifically referring to is the incidence of sedation and respiratory depression that's associated with their use. Um, there's very good literature to, to support the fact that both tapentadol and buprenorphine have a lower incidence of respiratory depression associated with their use. Um, and Stefan Schuch had a lovely poster at the International um, Addictions Conference that was held in Melbourne earlier this year, just looking at the incidence of um, death associated with overdose of the different opioids. Tepentadol and buprenorphine were significantly lower. Um, when you looked at um, tepentadol as the controller of, as one-to-one, -one, um, the incidence of drugs of, say, fentanyl in terms of death from overdose, it was 45 times higher, for example. Which, wow. And we use a lot of fentanyl very mm. safely in anaesthetics, but when you consider that this is being used also in, in patients who are at home in the, in the use of fentanyl patches, and it, it really does highlight the fact that some of our opioids are more dangerous, and some of them do have this lower incidence. Um, when you look at the Faculty of Pain Medicine opioid calculator, it works on a, a traffic light system when it refers to the oral dose of morphine per day. So if you're on a dose of less than 40 milligrams a day, the oral morphine calculator says it's uh, green. Up to 100 milligrams, it's then amber, and over 100 milligrams, it's red. And the reason it has that is to highlight the fact that you, are, you have an increasing risk associated with any opioid the higher dose you go. So if your dose is above 100 milligrams of oral morphine equivalents a day, and really no matter what opioid you're on, you're putting that patient at a high risk 
of respiratory depression um, and sudden death, effectively. Okay. And that is true for all of the opioids. We've got to remember that. They are safer, but it's still true. The higher the dose you go, the more likely you are to get these side effects. Okay, so in this sort of intraoperative setting, uh, in what, in which circumstances might I choose to use a drug like buprenorphine? So buprenorphine has certainly got uh, an improved safety profile for respiratory depression, so you may well choose to use it in patients who are at higher risk of respiratory depression, like patients with obstructive sleep apnea who have or who have coexistent respiratory disease. It also has a lower incidence of bowel complications like ileus and constipation. So if you have a patient specifically who you would like to avoid ileus in postoperatively, then again, that's an excellent choice for potentially a, a PCA, for example, postoperatively. And we've certainly got the capacity to run a buprenorphine PCA here at the Alfred. Okay. So let's talk about a hypothetical situation, a bit of an old school anaesthetic. So we've got a patient on our list for a laparotomy and we're concerned that they may have an ileus afterwards. The analgesia plan is to use morphine or oxycodone, you know, maybe 20 milligrams titrated through the case at a non-steroidal. Post-op, um, put them on a morphine, recovery and protocol and uh, notify the pain team, send them to the ward with a morphine PCA. That's my plan. What's your plan, Kerry? I mean, Jamie, it's not a bad plan. I mean, we, we, we've used morphine for decades um, and to good effect. So that as a starting point is not essentially a bad one. However, if you're specifically trying to reduce ileus, I'm going to go old school tool and, too and say, well, look, there's nothing wrong with an epidural, to be honest. Um, if you're looking at the gold standard in terms of analgesic performance, then an epidural is going to provide that for you with the reduction in ileus associated. But there's lots of reasons why patients can't have epidurals, for example. Uh -huh. um, there's quite a lot of patients that we get in now who've got um, anticoagulants for, for whatever reason. So it may well be that the central neuroaxial technique is just not available to you. If you want to run more systemic analgesic, then the use of, for example, a lignocaine infusion has level one evidence for reduction of ileus, for um, time to flatus and time to discharge as well. So it also has reduced nausea and vomiting and associated reduction in opioid consumption. So there are a number of good reasons why something like a perioperative lignocaine infusion, specifically for something like abdominal surgery, would be higher up on my list as an adjuvant for use. You may want to pre-medicate the patient as well with some of the anti-neuropathic agents like the gabapentinoids. Um, you may also want to consider other regional techniques like tap blocks, for example. So there's a number of different things that we can do um, that will help us reduce our opioid use. You could change the opioid you're using. You could try and use something like buprenorphine. You can give that intravenously as well as run it in the PCA postoperatively. And then, of course, there's always ketamine infusions as well, which have also been shown to reduce perioperative opioid use, but not specifically ileus. So there's a number of opioid-sparing techniques we already have at our disposal that would potentially be useful in that particular case. Okay. Now, and we, I mentioned to, um, to pentadol before. So where do you see tapentadol fitting into your um, post-surgical management? So tapentadol um, is a useful analgesic in that it has a combination of uh, mu receptor agonism. Um, so you get an opioid effect, but it also has noradrenergic and in part some serotonergic um, effects too. And so you facilitate those descending inhibitory pathways. Um, I like Dependistol specifically when there may be a neuropathic component to the pain and you need a combination of opioid and a neuropathic agent. Um, it is relatively well tolerated by the patients. It does have a lower incidence of nausea, vomiting and constipation associated with it. 
Um, but the lowest dose is still a relatively high oral morphine equivalent. So I think if you have an opioid-naive patient using the lowest dose, which is Depentadol 50, that's still theoretically equivalent to around about 15, 20 milligrams of oral morphine. And there's not many of us that would give Depentadol immediate release of 15 to 20, you know, and happily give 15 to 20 milligrams of oral morphine immediate release to, say, an elderly patient, we'd normally be giving 2.5 to 5. So I think you need to put your patients who are maybe more robust um, if you have an opioid-naive patient. Having said that, if you have an opioid-tolerant, more elderly patient, then using tepentadol, which has got, got a lower incidence of respiratory depression and sedation associated with it, could improve its use, potentially, because you are often limited in the elderly by confusion, delirium right. and sedation. So it has its place dependent on the individual pa patient. So it's got a lot of good factors, but I think the lowest dose component of it actually is one of its major limiting factors. Okay. And look, finally, is there anything else, you know, we've covered a, a, a lot of drugs here and a lot of different techniques. Is there anything else you think we can do as perioperative physicians to decrease this use of slow-release opioids going from the, the post-surgical period out into the community? So I think there's a lot <laughs> that we can do. And it really needs to start preoperatively with identification of patient risk factors. Um, patients who are more likely to be at high risk of, of post-operative pain, it would be important in those patients to consider even whether the surgery itself is essential. There are a number of patients who have surgery for pain that it have increased pain afterwards, and therefore the success of that surgery has to be questioned. There could have been other things that we could have done to manage that pain, specifically the more chronic pain clinics, multidisciplinary multimodal approach to that pain rather than subjecting the patient to another surgery for their pain when the outcomes are really not quite quite as obvious as you would hope they would be. That's the first thing. Um, possibly better use of preoperative pre um, targets such as the, the patient's expectations, really talking to the patients about what we expect to happen afterwards. I think this all needs to start pre-operatively. We might try and optimise antineuropathic agents in patients who are already taking them to try and minimise the opioid need post-operatively. In the perioperative period, there's plenty we can do to reduce our use of opioids in appropriate patients. And then afterwards, it's really about being clear in what we expect to happen to that opioid dose to the colleagues that are going to be responsible for the ongoing prescription of it. We know that the more opioid people are dispensed when they leave hospital, the more likely it is that they are going to continue that prescription on up to three months, even, even onwards up to a year. So we need to be very careful about how much we prescribe at the point of discharge. And there are some lovely studies coming out really looking at how much opioid is required at the point of discharge based on the patient's in-hospital opioid use and their pain scores as well. So plenty of work. Okay. Kerry, once again, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jamie.